ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and make this program. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the Turrbal and Jagera people and the Larrakia people pay respects to their elders, past and present. And we extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello, Charlie King here, and today I'm sharing with you an encore of my conversation with Nova Peris. Nova Peris OAM is a Gidja, Yaru and Gagadju woman born on Larrakia country in Darwin. She is the true definition of a trailblazer, a woman of many firsts. To this day, Nova is the only person on the planet to make back-to-back Summer Olympic Games finals in two different sports. Nova became the country's first First Nations woman elected to federal parliament. She is strong, resilient and has fought with an unwavering determination to achieve. Nova Peris is with me today to share her inspiring story on conversations. Welcome, Nova. Thank you, Charlie. You're fresh from 12 days at the Noble Silence Retreat. (laughs) Tell us about that. Well, it's actually called uh, Vipassana. So it's a uh, a 2,500-year-old tradition that extended from Buddha, but it's not a religion. It's actually a way of life. It's a practice. And I'd heard about this. A friend of mine did it a couple of years ago, and I looked into it more. And... uh, what it is, it is, it's 105 hours, Charlie, over 10 days of intense meditation. So if you think about, for example, an ex-sports person, you know, we, we thrive on highs and the highs are a sensation and people take drugs and alcohol. It's not for the drugs or the alcohol, it's actually for the sensations. Mm. So people crave these things. And so this all comes from the mind. So you agreed to the noble silence, you don't talk, you don't take any writing equipment, you don't take books and you don't talk to people, you don't look at anyone and you're there and you don't pay for it. So someone else has paid for you and it's a pay it forward. So you don't complain about the fact that you have to get up at 4am every morning, you start meditating at 4.30. So it's 10 and a half hours of meditation every day in the hall or in your room. The food is all vegetarian food. And the meditation, what it teaches you is to actually, because you're sitting there cross-legged and you concentrate on, on the breathing. And then when you're starting to cramp, because some sessions can go for one to two hours and you can't move, you can't open your eyes. It's just you and your mind. So what this has taught me that we all have thoughts and these thoughts, depending on how intense they are, can become an action. And you have to ask yourself, is this action going to hurt me and is it going to hurt others? Because these actions become verbal, physical or other means of communication. And if they're going to hurt me and other people, then you have to rethink of what Mm. you're thinking about. It's bloody the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but it is the best thing I've ever done in my life. Good way to start the conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The the two people in the room, you and I, both find our voice is very important. I do because I'm a broadcaster. You do because you speak out on some important things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nova, let's go back. Can you tell us about your early years growing up in Darwin and were the odds to achieve in your favour, do you think? You know what, Charlie, I look at my childhood here in Darwin and I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else on the planet. You know, I am grateful for the family life that I had grateful for the fact that I went to good old Tiwi primary school and I was allowed to dream. I dreamt big as a kid. You know, the NT News, oh, there's a picture of me. It had Nova Paris, can she bring home gold for Australia in the Territory? So I often say there's no pressure on a nine-year-old kid growing up in the, in the Territory. And that was after winning five gold medals and breaking five NT records. And so to answer that question, you know, were the odds against me? I sort of feel in a way that the odds were for me because I could play sports and I was supported by family. I had that family sport and I could go away and represent the Northern Territory and and I was on the, you know, watch this up-and-coming athlete. But it doesn't matter what talents you have as a kid and the support, it's what you're you're going to commit to. Mm. You know, I often look at, you know, racism has played a big part in stopping people from achieving their dreams. But I think growing up here in Darwin, because it was a, a melting pot of multiculturalism and there's a high population of Aboriginal people, I, I sort of felt that, you know, I was in a good space where I could dream big and, and there was a lot of talent 
representative people like the Hockey Roos came through here in 1988 on the way to, to them winning gold in the Seoul Olympics and I got to rub shoulders with those people who I looked up to. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk about your family, uh, mm-hmm. your mother, Joan, who I knew very well. Joan was part of the stolen generation. W- what is her story? So mum was born in the Kimberleys. Nana and granddad were also members of the stolen generation. Nana uh, was born in Mullabulla. She was taken off her mother when she was two years old. Her mother was a full-blood Aboriginal woman. Father was an Irish Scotsman. And likewise, similar story with my grandfather born in Broome and, and his mother and father was Aboriginal and Irish-Scottish blood as well. So those two, and I hate the word half-caste, they were removed as well. So they they met in the East Kimberleys post the war. They were allowed to be married. Grandad, who was, as a stockman, a lot of them were all paid rations, Charlie, and, and you know, we, we know that. So work dried up. So after they had the four kids in the Kimberleys, they moved up here to Darwin, Arakia country. And, and mum's story is when she first came up here, they lived on the beach, nothing more than a tent. And then they all moved into the Sydney William Huts, which was the aftermath from the from the war, which was home to a lot of the servicemen. And it was that time when Granad was out working, Nana was pregnant for a fifth child and the, the priest went around to those huts and, and said to the mothers, your children need to go to school. And so who was my Nana to ask, argue with the man of authority when it happened to her? And so... Mum and her other siblings, six, four and two, jumped on a boat thinking that they were going to go to school and they got sent to the Tiwi Island. So mum lived there for 10 years and she was trained as a domestic servant and then she got fostered out to an English foster family in, uh, in Adelaide where they treated my mum and Auntie Anne, who was also stolen generation, was taken from Catherine, as their equal. They said, no, you're not coming here to be a domestic servant to us. You're coming here because we've fostered you and we want to give you a good life. How does your mum reflect on that time? So mum's story is the glass is half full for her. Never pessimistic. She was optimistic. Irrespective of the life that she had on the mission, and it was actually fantastic that the, the church apologised to the Garden Point mission mob just last year. But I think because mum had love and affection from the foster parents, Auntie Jo and Uncle Harold. She she said it never really looked back on the life and she came back up here to Darwin, which was 22, 23, got a job in the public service, raised me and my sister in the old, good old Kringle Flats and then she moved and brought her first house, you know, not long after when I was about eight or nine years old and, and she still lives in the same house. So her story is one of stolen generation, optimistic, moved to a place where she was loved and treated equally in human dignity. She came here and what I have for my mum is utmost gratitude for the fact that her view on life was get up and have a go. I would never have a life like my mother. My mother would never have a life like my grandparents. So here we are today with all the achievements that I have and and I owe everything to, to my mother for the optimistic view that she had in life. Later, when you were elected to federal parliament, you referenced the apology to the stolen generation in your maiden speech. Why did you feel so compelled to do that? Uh, Because, like I said, you know, Charlie, I have gratitude for my freedom, something that my mother never had. I have gratitude for the fact that I could dream when I was nine years old of going to the Olympics. Mum didn't have that dream. When she was eight years old, you know, nine years old, she spent one year locked up in a dormitory with the other mission kids. So I valued education, I valued sports, all the things that my mother didn't have. And I also had a voice, Charlie. My mother never had a voice. My grandparents never had a voice. So it was important that people did look at me as this athlete that had travelled to 52 countries around the world in sports and, you know, had won various gold medals in, in two different sports. But I felt compelled that I owe it to those who have gone before me. So I felt compelled to be able to share my mother's story um, the fact that they didn't have a, a voice. And, and and it was also important to acknowledge the hurt and the, the trauma. And, you know, yes, I called for the compensation. It was actually fantastic that a lot of the stolen generation mob are now finally being compensated because anywhere in the world, if you are hurt and it's not your fault, you seek an apology and you seek compensation for that hurt. And so it's fantastic that now all these years on that a lot of them are starting to be compensated for all the injustices against those stolen generation um, children. 
Now, because of your mother's influence, did that connect you back to your other family, if you like, in Arnhem Land? Well, from an early age when I had, before mum had separated from my father, I had a lot to do with my paternal side of the family. So they were always there sort of lingering. Yeah. And it wasn't until I think I was about 21 when I'd first um, represented Australia. Um, I'd crossed paths with my father and he'd taken me back out to, to Cannon Hill, Yagadu country, where I'd met old man Bill Naji. And I sort of felt because of mum being stolen generation and all our mob is East and West Kimberleys, we were so far removed, like a lot of our mob who were displaced during the stolen generation. But from the paternal side of the family, they were still very strong in culture. And for me going back when I was 21, 22, having spent time with that old man, Bill Naji and Jonathan Naji was just such a very important time in my life because I was this Aboriginal woman achieving things across the, the sporting globe and people would say, you know, who, who are you, where are you from? I thought, and I'm like, I'm Australian. And they said, oh, but we thought people from Australia were white. I said, no, us First Nations people have been here for 50,000 years. And so it was so important for me to connect with that side of the family because they were so strong in culture and also gave me my strength and my identity that I could tell the stories about our inherent responsibilities tell the world about how proud we were about our continuous and ongoing culture and, and connection to, to our Mother Earth and, and our sacred sites and, and our country. So it was paramount for me in all the things that I end up going on to achieve. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't have strength in my identity. So yeah. I owe a lot to, you know, that side of the family. Uh, so let's go back to the young Nova growing up on Larrakia country in Darwin. When did sport come into your life? When did you first get involved in sport? Well, because my mum and aunties and uncles and a lot of the Territory families all played hockey. It was a dry season sport. And so from the time I could walk, I had a hockey stick in my hand. So it was just a, a natural progression that I was going to uh, play hockey. So, And I also played soccer, actually, my first trophy I ever got Charlie was when I was seven years old and that was a little soccer trophy and because mum played soccer for the NT so it was a big part of our family and a lot of my uncles were champion footballers that come out of the out of the territory so that's how I sort of got involved in hockey it was is through my mum the old Alawa hockey fields back in the day were just packed full of hockey enthusiasts so yeah that's where it sort of came from mm. it's it's the you can't be what you can't see and all my family played hockey and it was something that came very natural to me. I wonder if the dream was, was still there to play at the, the Olympics but I want to ask you, you had your first child Jessica at that time, did that thwart your plans on trying to play at the Olympics? I guess yes and no. It's hard to sort of think back because what had happened was I'd won various medals as a junior at national championships in athletics there was no senior refs here in Darwin, so hockey became a full-time thing for me. So I finished running when I was 14. When I was 15, I made Australian schoolgirls. When I was 18, I made Australian under-18s hockey teams, if you like. And then when I was 18, when I finished year 12, I did a public service traineeship here in Darwin. I went to Queensland to play hockey and I fell pregnant over there. And when I came back to Darwin whilst I was pregnant, I was too scared to tell anyone because I was all of 18 years old. And you know, in the Australian under-18s team. And it's something that I was like, there wasn't any other thought in my mind that was going to change the fact that I wanted to become a, a young mum. And Jessica was born uh, two weeks after my 19th birthday. And the Australian under-21s hockey championships was in Darwin later on that year. And so... For me, it was, I knew I had to train twice as hard because people started saying, oh, she's never going to go on and achieve the things that she was going mm. to achieve. And so I had a lot of negative typecasting thrown over me. So when I had Jess, when I made the NT team, I got picked in Australian under 21s with an eight-month-old daughter. So from there, the dream, the, the light in the belly still that was Kindle there, it was still going to, it was a matter of not how and when, it was 
it's going to happen. It's yeah. going to happen. So how did it happen? So the, the pathway to Perth, which was the hockey capital, that was something that I had to do straight away. And that's where I packed up my life and my daughter when she was one years old and moved to Perth and, and had to make that transition to say, I'm going to give it one big crack. And, you know, I guess the rest is history. So even having a young child, you know, I look at, back at the life, I just dragged Jessica around everywhere. She was on the back of my push bike. I used to get up and, and run and it was nothing Nothing had entered my mind to say I was a young mum and I was never going to be able to achieve my dreams. Wow. That's where it all came <laughs> from. It's goodness me. And who would have thought that you would then be selected in the Hockey Roos team to go to the Olympics in 1996? So you spent some time in Perth to the point where you were selected for the Olympics. What happened next? I left to go to Perth in April of 1992. It was do or die that year, my last year in under-21s, and Rick Charlesworth had just finished Parliament after spending 10 years. So 1992, December, he had decided to resign from Parliament after 10 years. He'd been to five Olympic Games himself. He knew the pathway to success and he took the reins of the Hockey Roos team. So he came over to uh, New Zealand to watch us play. Him watching me play, I was selecting Australian senior squad. The following year, in April 1993, 12 months after I left Darwin, I was on my way to Japan to play my first test cap for Australia. So fast-forwarding it, I was a regular member of that team. Rick Charlesworth was at the rain. Uh, we had an incredible s squad. We'd won, you know, World Cup 94, Champions Trophy 93, 95, going into the Olympics. We were hot favourites. And we had a squad of 25 and... and uh, we trained bloody hard, but we were all replaceable. So the thing is with Rick, what he saw in me was he saw tenacity and he knew that I had the ability to win. And that Olympic year, it was, it was really hard. And I'll never forget the way that we had to find out if we were in that Olympic team. We had to make a phone call to the Women's Hockey Australia. Wow. And you'd have to just say, hi, it's Nova. And they'll say, yes, you're in or no, you're not. And that's, that was the cutthroat of how we were notified if we were in that Olympic team or not. I got in and I just remember crying and crying and crying. And I had a phone call from my good friend, Nikki Mott or Nikki Hudson, who didn't make the team. She was selected as a shadow. So, you know, we had some of your best mates who, who never made the cut. But, um, you know, it was a once in a lifetime dream, I suppose, for many people to make an Olympic team and... Uh, yeah, we went in 38 games undefeated into the Atlanta Olympics and, uh, you know, it was just incredible and we had an incredible team and an incredible coach. Something special happened on the bus ride from the, what I think would have been the Olympic Village to the, to the hockey field. Something happened special on the bus. Can you share that story? Yeah, so before I left, I got a package from Nana and she said to me, you're not to open this unless you're in the Olympic final. And I said, okay. So it made the Olympic final. We all had to, um, we were playing at seven o'clock that evening. So I'm sitting on the bus and we had our old cassette blaster with the tapes going and everything. And, um, and I said, okay, girls, can I have it? Cause I need to play this tape. And it was a recording and a letter from my family to say, you're not just there for yourself, we're all behind you. And when I hit the play button, it was um, Slim Dusty's You've Done Us Proud, which was Grandad's favourite song because Grandad had passed away in 1995. So I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out and all the hockey girls like, what the hell is wrong with you? I said, no, you know, I was just, I was thinking of my grandfather and going into that Olympics, I couldn't have prepared any better knowing that I'd done all the hard yards with training us physically, mentally, but that was just another element to me playing well that day was because I was doing it not only for myself, but also for mm. the family and my grandfather. So the result is you won the gold medal. You became the first First Nations person to win an Olympic gold medal. I mean, come on, amazing. <laughs> like, do you remember how you felt at that time when, this, when the siren went to end the game? Yeah, I remember just the, the jubilation because we were 3-1 up and with 10 seconds to go, half the girls had thrown their hockey sticks in the air and we just grabbed each other and were crying and, you know, the jubilation was just incredible and, and it was actually Rick Charlesworth that came up to me and he looked me in the eyes and he said... 
Do you know Kathy Freeman won an Olympic medal yesterday, which she'd won hers in the track and field the day before? He said, but you have become the first Aboriginal person, First Nations person to win an Olympic gold medal. I was like, holy shit. I actually didn't know that. So for him to tell me that was just another layer of, oh, my God, what an... And it, and it wasn't actually until I got back to Australia, Charlie, during the ticket tape parades where they had hundreds of thousands of people come out and celebrate and it really just dawned on me and, you know, you go back to Michael Armat and, you know, Danny Morso and people had gone to the Olympics before me and think, holy hell, that's, that's a phenomenal achievement yeah. and um, especially the first Territorian as well. So, yeah. Well, we have great memories of you winning that gold medal at the Olympics, but we also have great memories from those Olympics when the great Muhammad Ali lit the, the, the torch and you had an opportunity to spend some time with Muhammad Ali. Tell us that. Yeah, I, I did. So he was just mobbed the whole time he was in the Olympic Village, so I think he stopped coming in for a while. And then I got to meet him in 1998 when he came out to Australia and then after I carried the Olympic flame on June the 8th, 2000, so me being the first Australian on home soil with Olympic flame, I was actually sponsored by the Pratt family. And they had said to me, when you go back to America, because I used to do a number of appearances for my sponsorship that I had, would you like one of your appearances to be with Muhammad? And I said, oh, my God, what an amazing opportunity to spend time with Muhammad Ali before the Sydney Olympics. And I said, absolutely, love to. And they've asked me to contact the Australian Olympic Committee if I can get a torch replica and present it to Muhammad on behalf of the Australian people to say thank you, you know, for everything that he'd done. So when I went back to America, I had a torch replica and there was a picture and all this amazing footage of me presenting Muhammad with this Olympic torch from the Sydney Olympics. So if he lit the flame in 96, I was the first torchbearer here in Australia. And so it was an exchange. And so I got Muhammad to sign my torch. And then the torch that I gave him, he wanted me to sign that. So I was like, oh, I was honoured and humbled. And so I signed Muhammad's torch. And so that torch is actually in his museum. And I think the, the Pratt family had a lot to do with the fact that they'd put money into his museum. Did you share thoughts around First Nations people, those sorts of issues? Did you have yeah, chance to talk about those Yeah, we did. I actually things? spent a couple of hours with Muhammad after I'd done this sort of media. And then I got to have lunch with him and, and we spoke. But because he had Parkinson, it was hard for him to actually talk. And I just remember holding his hands, we were sitting down and holding his hands and I was thinking, oh my God, look at these hands, they're worth its weight in gold, you know, like this, his hands were just, not only was he a great fighter, but what he did for people. And I'll never forget, Charlie, I said to Muhammad, I said, what makes you so great? Why do people love you? And he said, because I never look down upon those who look up to me. And I thought, you know what, that is just something that I'll never forget because mm. He is not only an inspiration to, to his people, but it's also what he did through the civil rights in the 1967, 68 in America. And him winning his Olympic gold medal, I think it was the 62 Olympics, he came back to his country and he was denied service as a black man and he took his Olympic gold medal and threw it in the river. He said, what is the use of me having this Olympic gold medal if you can praise me as an athlete, but you can't praise me as a human being yeah. in my own country? So, you know, it was what he did during the, the civil rights movement that really made me have so much more admiration for him. But we also talked about children, our future and the investment that we have to put into our children. So Muhammad was just an incredible, softly spoken man. But, you know, Parkinson's had, had really sort of got to him at that time. So it was a bit difficult to have long conversations. The Olympics gave you an opportunity to mix and meet with great people. Now, despite your huge achievements in hockey... You then decided to switch sports when you came back to Australia and you chose athletics, but first you needed to be selected. Can you talk about that and why the switch? Why, why, did, you, why did you want to go off and compete at Commonwealth Games? Yeah, Games? I think, you know, like I retired on 97 caps for Australia. I represented Australia for five or six years, if you include the under-21s. And for me it was... What more? You can't climb any higher than winning an Olympic gold medal. That's the top of the mountain. So I'd sort of knew 
from my time in 94, 95 in the off-season to hockey. Um, Matt Barber, who used to coach Dean Capabianco, spotted me when I was doing off-season training and said, oh, my God, you can run like the wind girl. Um, And so he said, you should run some pro meets. And so I I ran a number of pro meets, won a number of gifts. Then I went to the Bay Sheffield in, in Adelaide. I won the Bay Sheffield in December of 1994. And it was the following year I ran at Nationals and I finished in the top six or eight over the 100 and 200. So the seed was planted way back then that if I won Olympic gold, I was going to switch sports. So in the off-season to hockey, I was training for athletics. So it wasn't just an overnight decision. It was the seed that had been planted way back in 94. So for me to retire uh, with 97 caps, absolutely I could have gone on and had another Olympic gold medal. But for me to go to the Olympics and compete in a sport that was my childhood dream. It was hard in a way because here I was, this hockey player, dabbling in another sports, successful in other sports. And so I certainly had my critics. It was like the hockey people like fraternity, get back to hockey. And the athletics people was, who the hell does she think she is? Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Charlie King. So, Nova, you were telling us about your move from hockey to athletics. Can I ask you about the selection process? Because at first you weren't selected for the Commonwealth Games team. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I I guess, you know, like, it's funny because at the national championships, I'd medalled in both the one and the two. I had A qualifying times and then they had a selection championships, which was two or three months outside of the Commonwealth Games in winter in Sydney. And I finished third and two were automatically qualified. So there was a third person that needed to be picked. And on the day, this selection process was the selectors have the ability to choose at their discretion. So they went with another athlete, Tanya Van Heer. And so she got it over me and we went through the court of arbitration. And although the selection criteria said I could have been, but there was that one little discretion that said at the end of the day, that last spot is the selector's discretion. And so that was it. I copped it on the chin and... I went to the Commonwealths and Melinda ended up withdrawing from the 100 metres. So I got to run the 100. I made the Commonwealth Games final and finished fifth. And then the day before the 200 metres, which I'd only gone to the Commonwealths as a member of the relay team, Cathy Freeman withdrew. And so I got a call up from the selectors, would you like to run the 200? Because I was the third best in Australia at the time. And I said, absolutely. So I went and the rest is history. It is indeed, but I've got to tell you, I was with a small group of Darwin people. We were in Kuala Lumpur for those Commonwealth Games and mm. at the Booker Jail Stadium, we saw that race that you, you went in. We had a taxi that was taking us to the airport, which you might remember is a long way yep. out of town. So we left the taxi outside and said, keep the metre running if you have to. We've got to go and see Nova run in the final of the 200. And, I mean, history tells us you, you won it, but it was a fantastic finish. Can you just talk us through... The, the race and how, how you got to the line? It was interesting because I had a friend who contacted me and said, oh, my God, woman, can you stop frowning whilst you're on your starting blocks? Lighten up. You should be enjoying it. And I thought to myself, that's so true. You know, in a team sport, you've got your teammates around you. And then when you go to the Commonwealth Games, I was there as an individual and I loosened up. And whilst I was on the starting blocks, I thought of my grandfather and I sort of looked up and had a smile on my face because you'd done all the hard work, you know, we're, we're creatures of habits. That's why you train when competition, it's, that's supposed to be the fun part. Yeah, I ran the race of my life and was fifth of the turn and, and I ended up winning by 0.02 of a second. So, yeah, it was just an incredible feeling and one that a lot of people didn't expect, but I knew what I was capable of doing. My coach knew what I was capable of doing. And at the end of the day, that's all you need is just Mm. a couple of people to believe in you. And if things are meant to go the way that 
people think it's meant to go, then what's the point of having competition? You know, it's how you line up on the day, irrespective of what the hell has happened prior to that moment. It's irrelevant. It's how you line up on the day, how you mentally prepare yourself, how you are physically prepared and how you run that race. So, yeah, everything lined up and I ran a massive personal best and beat Juliet Campbell from Jamaica, who, who was a renowned, respected athlete. And at the press conference, I remember the journalist saying to Juliet, so Juliet, are you happy with silver? And oh my God, if looks could kill daggers like she was like hell no I came here to win gold but yeah. she said all credit to Nova she ran a brilliant race and and I congratulate her and that's the way sport should be you know why do you have to knock people down it, it's how you line up on the day and it, it was a fantastic race yeah. certainly to win by 0.02 of a second is is not much you cut in hair there Charlie so no it was it was incredible well, I mean we watched the race and I, I've got to tell you I watched it again this morning mm. your last 10 metres, that, that fierce determination to win must have kicked in because you just flew home. Yeah. Uh, you, you, come, you, you were not leading. You flew home and right on the line, you pipped them. I did. And that, I think that's just the way that we, we used to train. And my coach used to say, just, you know, you got to hold your form, hold your form and let the line come to, to you. And I think, yeah, the last four or five metres, my stride just got bigger and bigger. And it was just that, that perfect dip at the end. Did you have any falling out with any of the other runners from that race? Because Melinda Gainsford-Taylor was favourite for, for Australia to, to win it, but you, you were able to catch her right on the line. Was the relationship okay with those other runners that were in the race from yeah, Australia? Yeah, oh, totally fine. Yeah. Oh, totally fine. I just think, you know, media has a lot to cater for and I should have been celebrated as Australian. I shouldn't have been divided as an Australian. And the media does that a lot, you know. They like to make everything a black-white thing. They just like to cause a division. I should have just been celebrated. And Australian, should have, that should have been the headlines. Australian Nova Paris wins Commonwealth gold. Um, it was my day. And um, unfortunately, the negative people just don't like the underdog for some reason. They either love you or hate you. And uh, I came back to the Territory and what should have been a moment of celebration, you know, can get overshadowed with, you know, media's perceptions of things and how things are written up. Let's jump forward to the 2000 Olympics. You were the first person to run with the Sydney Olympic torch at Uluru, mm. uh, but it was first passed between elders and then it finished up in your hands. I was there. I watched all this happen. Mm. Uh, so the torch finished up with you and then you got a message that came through from one of the other runners, the one who you were going to pass the torch on to, I think, was Ernie Dingo, and a message arrived to you telling you something a bit special. Uh, can you share what that was? So I got it from the Mulajulu elders. Yeah. They passed it to me, and the old lady, Millie, when she passed the flame to me, the flame went out, and the flame is never meant to go out. And I'm standing there in front of hundreds and hundreds of journalists and photographers and I'm standing there barefoot. So I had no shoes on and I chose to run barefoot as a sign of respect for sacred country, for the Murujulu people. And also it was a political statement that I was making around the impoverished community that is on the other side of the rock, the Murujulu people. So I did it and I'd thought about it, even though the Olympic trials were only three or four weeks away. So what had happened was that old lady, Millie, she said to me, no shoes. I said, no, son of respect for your country. And she had a big smile on her face. And it was zero degrees that morning. It was freezing. Mm. And so I think they had Stan Grant and Ray Martin who were doing the commentary. And they were mic'd up to Ernie Dingo. And when the flame went out the first time, they'd relit, relit it. When I'd gone forward, the journalists, one of the journalists said, no shoes, Nova. And I'd said the reason why. They'd relit the flame again. And I ran 1.9 barefoot. Ernie Dingo was number two. But what had happened was when I ran out of the car park, there are all these kids carrying a huge big Aboriginal flag and the flame went out for the third time and they relit it. And so Ernie was like, oh, what's going on? And Stan Grant was like, oh, the flame's gone out three times and Nova's wearing no shoes. And Ernie's like, what the hell is she wearing no shoes for? And they'd said it's a sign of respect for country. So it was them translating to Ernie. So Ernie took his shoes off and ran barefoot because I'd started the chain yes. reaction for that. So that was an incredible moment and that Olympic flame going out three times. It was an incredible day and the Olympic 
I guess, fraternity were like, you know, under no circumstance should the Olympic flame carrier be accompanied by anyone else. And that all went out the window. Mm. Jessica ran with me. Then Yvonne Gulagong was there as well. And 100 kids ran with her. Kids ran with Charlie. And, you know, that's what the Olympic Games is all about. It brings people together. And, you know, the Olympic flame is something that is, it is so important to the, um, the spirit of the Games. And you went on to compete at the Sydney Olympics. You had mm. some success there too. I made the Olympic semi-final in the 400 metres. I ran a massive personal best. Missed out on making the final, but I still had two more races to go and, and I anchored our 4 by 4 team in the absence of Cathy Freeman. And we broke a 23-year-old Australian record and I ran a 49-4 split. And so Cathy Freeman and Melinda Gainsford came in and we ran in the Olympic final and finished fifth. And uh, I started in that race as opposed to anchoring the, the night before and we broke the record again. So missed out on a, uh, on a medal, Charlie, not by much, but, you know, I can proudly say that I ran five times in front of 110,000 yeah. people and broke an Australian record twice and that record still stands. It's 22 years old now. Yeah. Two great First Nations athletes, you and, and Cathy Freeman. Well, was your relationship, did it have some ups and downs? How did you two get on? Oh, had a lot of respect for each other. You know, mm. I, I sort of feel that, you know, we used to train together. We lived together for, for a little bit. She stayed with my sister and she's, she's close to my sister. But I sort of feel that it's hard in the world of track and field. It's you, the two white lines and a stopwatch and that's it, you know. And it's not like a hockey team where 16 people were you know, awarded an Olympic gold medal and you can share that moment and, and your mates for life. It's, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world and people are extremely competitive and, you know, outside of the world of athletics, you know, just people have their own lives and, and we can just go out different ways and get on with our own lives post-athletics. Post now, not one to shy away from a challenge. You, uh, sometime later, you were lured to the bright lights of Canberra and in 2013... Then Prime Minister Julia Gillard hand-selected you to run for the Senate. How did this happen and how did you find out? How that sort of happened was I'd met a couple of Kiwi guys in South Africa and one of them was a former Labor minister in New Zealand. And so my husband and I spent some time with them and he had a bit to do with the, the Labor Party and he put my name, said, oh, I think this woman would be an incredible politician since you'd never had a, a black person in the Australian parliament. And so I was emailed by the national executive and yeah, I'd met with them and I had two weeks to make a decision, A or nay. And I said, okay, you know, I've always been pretty direct when things are asked of me when it comes to the plight of our people. And, you know, especially when I ran with the Olympic flame in 2000, you know, making that political statement of wearing no shoes and drawing attention to the plight of Aboriginal people. So I never forget my grandmother when she passed away, before she passed away, she said, you should get into politics, Nova, you know, the gutter people, they listen to you and you're a, you're a good role model for our people. And so I think my nana cursed me before she passed away. And so, yeah, when I got that call up, I'd met with the members of the National Executive, I guess the rest is history. In history indeed. So how did you feel on the night that, that, that it was declared that you'd actually won a seat? Yeah, I think it was one of emotion. And what I learnt in Parliament is to never have an opinion if you've never been fully informed. And so there was a lot that I had to learn. And, you know, if I was going to do something, I wanted to do it properly. So I had a lot of support people who thought it was fantastic that I was brave enough and bold enough to, to make that entry as the first Aboriginal woman. And you look at Parliament now, it's got seven or eight Aboriginal women. And it took me to be the first to break that glass ceiling and put up with all the shit that I did over those years. But And, and if that's made it easier for the next slot to come through, then, then I've certainly mm. done my job. So it sort of dragged you back into focus to the media again. Mm. And the media weren't that kind to you, if I remember, during your time in, in, in politics, as they weren't with that result from Kuala Lumpur. What sort of relationship did you have with the media, Nova? There's always got to be media that like you, media that don't like you, media that would sensationalise things. We have 24-hour news cycles, Charlie. 
people want to break news. They, they want to just throw shit at you because they can. And it's really sad because that sort of behaviour actually deters good people from entering politics. And it's a sense of bullying and media know that they can get away with it. And so, you know, I just had to remain focused on who I was and who I was representing. And you can only control the controllables and control how you react to certain things that you can't control. Mm. So certainly there were times, you know, it was extremely difficult. A lot of people don't realise that for the three years that I was in Parliament, every week, every single week, 52 weeks of the year, three to four times a week, I endured racial discrimination. I just hatred and death threats. And it's, it's not a way any human should live their life when you're just trying to do good for your constituents. You know, you're trying to do good for enhance the lives of the most impoverished people, the most oppressed people. Mm. And I think people just felt challenged by someone who wasn't going to stand by and say nothing. If you're going to stand for something, then you speak for it. So to a degree, I just had to continue to be true to myself and, you know, not let the, the negativity consume me. What are a couple of achievements from your time as a politician over that you're most proud of? Look, as, as a senator, you're responsible for a lot of committees. I sat on a lot of committees. You know, it was hard listening to stories of especially kids in out-of-home care, domestic violence, shelters being defunded and not funded enough, just practical, common-sense stuff that you're on Senate committees for. And I certainly felt I played a big part in stopping muckety. That was a big issue, hot topic for the Territorians. We didn't want muckety in our backyard. And I, as a novice politician, I said that I was across the floor. <laughs> and then Warren Snowden said, well, Nova, you know, if you cross the floor... You get kicked out of the Labor Party. And I said, oh, well, maybe I'm prepared to do that, Warren. And so it was said to the Labor Party, you've got this Aboriginal politician who's going to stand for her people. She's going to stand for her constituents. So yeah. there was that, the watering down of the Racial Discrimination Act, where you sort of box on with the Attorney General. And I said to him in, in Parliament, you know, um, George Brandis, you know, won't watering down the Racial Discrimination Act give the rights, the green light to bigotry. And he stood up and said, oh, Senator Paris, everyone has a right to be a bigot, you know. I was like, oh, my God, this is our Attorney General saying everyone has a right to be a bigot, says the white man in Parliament who's never experienced racial discrimination, who's never experienced discrimination because of the colour of his skin. And you felt that entitled to be able to say that. So, you know, the power of the people and, you know, the fact that I could call that out in Parliament, you know, it, didn't eventuate, thank God for that. But they're just a couple of things, Charlie, that really stand out and the speeches that I gave and, you know, maybe it was the inspiration that I gave to other people that are yeah. there in Parliament now who yeah. had the courage to put their hand up. Would the Nova of today be a better politician? Is it something you're thinking about in the future? We, we would not be surprised, Nova, but is it, is it something you do again? I certainly feel that there was unfinished business there. You know, I left on my terms where I chose my family over going around again. You know, it wasn't something that I'd signed up for when you look at how I was treated in Parliament. And like now, of course, what am I, God, nine years on since I was in Parliament. It's almost mm. a decade of more wisdom, a decade of more lived experiences and a decade of actually sitting back and thinking, well, how much has actually changed? So absolutely, there are things that I would be far greater representative now, 10 years on, than what I was back then. So what do we take out of that? You're not, you're not ruling it oh. out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know, Charlie. We'll see, we'll see. Now, you have three grown children. Have any of them followed in your footsteps? Do you want them to follow in your footsteps? Oh, you know, I think one thing that I'm grateful for is They've all had a love and passion for school. They've all had a love and passion for sports. They've all certainly got a lot of the DNA out of the athletic pool, but I'm just glad that they've, they've become really good human beings. That, to me, is really important as, as a mother and as a grandmother as well. 
You're a self-made woman, there's no doubt about that. The, the sacrifices you've made have paid off for you. You are the definition of self-made, I, I reckon. Has there been a toll on you? I wouldn't say a toll because I choose to do the things that I've done to a degree. Mm. So people want to know my story and people want to know how I've succeeded. You know, they know the Nova story, but they want to hear it from me. So that's tiring at times because I talk about my mother's history, my grandparents' history, because I can't acknowledge my history and my achievements without first acknowledging them. Mm. So that sometimes takes its toll of having to continually tell that story over and over again. But I think sometimes you just want to shrink to be a little church mouse in a stadium, you know, where I was at the footy last week and uh, every third, fourth person knew me. Hey, how you going over? Oh, you're such a champion. And my family have all admired you. So I would never escape from that. It's like being at the footy with Nikki Winmar as well. People gravitate. They, they just love to know that they've been able to touch you or talk to you and they love your achievements. So I think the only time it can take its toll is, is sometimes you, you don't want the notoriety. You just want to be that little church mouse and just hide in the background. But, you know, along with all my successes has, has come the fame and, and people want to be part of that. You know, they want to talk to you and have a photo. So, you know, I often think back to that Muhammad Ali message was never look down upon those who look up to you. And I've always carried that with me. For decades, you fought hard for the rights of uh, First Nations people in Australia. Well, where do you think that, that passion, that drive to do that has actually come from? When I look back at my time when I left school, uh, year 12, I did a public service traineeship or cadetship at Charles Darwin Uni. And the cadetship I chose was Aboriginal Health. And one of my first jobs was driving a little mini bus around to pick up elders in the outskirts communities and bring them into Danila Dilba for the health check. So I'd always had a passion of wanting to help people. And later on in my life, I felt that, yes, I was blessed with all this talent, but I was also had so much gratitude for the life that I had of having a roof over my head gratitude for education and being able to play sports and having the freedom. And I think too, with my grandmother, every time I'd gone to a major championships, I was never allowed to beat my chest and have an ego because she'd slap me back down and say, well, you know, what have you done for me, Nova? You're here because I saved you during Cyclone Tracy. <laughs> so I was always constantly reminded that the life I had was because of the sacrifices that have gone before me. Yeah. Because my mum and Nana had never had a voice, I felt that I had been afforded a platform where I could speak for those who didn't have a voice. And it wasn't a burden for me to do that, Charlie. It was an easy thing to do it. And I always also live by a saying, as much as given, much as expected. And I felt that I was given so much and I was grateful for that. And there was an expectation always for me to, to give back. And, and that was never a burden. It, it become an easy thing for me to do. In 2021, a statue of Nova Paris was unveiled in Federation Square in Melbourne. Tell us about that. In 2019, I think it was, I was contacted by this statue people called Gilly and Mark. They're, they're a couple and part of their, their sculptures, they were doing 10 statues of 10 prominent women here in Australia. It's called Statues for Equality. They'd done 10 statues in America and of people like Oprah Winfrey. And so it was about getting more women of colour and more women of different ethnic backgrounds. So anyway, they contacted me and said they'd done this survey and the Australian people had voted and I was one of these 10 women. But a part of that, we had to find $50,000 in sponsorship. Then COVID hit and then there was this, the whole thing about the Black Lives Matter movement and they'd contacted me and said, Do you know what? We're not going to do the other statues because a lot of the women had um, sponsorship had been pulled because of COVID and they said, we're only going to do you. So we're going to pump all our resources 
into this one statue. So this happened in, in 2020. I'd contacted Janda Murray Cad, who is an incredible artist who painted my portrait, which is hung at Parliament House. And I said, would you help design my statue? So that's how it came about. And it was unveiled last year. We had two attempts at it. We got shut down because of COVID in Melbourne. Then we went back in July last year and, and it was unveiled and it's still at Federation Square and it's, it's going to have a, a permanent home in the, in the coming months. You know, sadly in Victoria, there's actually more statues of racehorses than there are women. And there are only 1.5% of all statues in Victoria are women. And I'm one of them. So it's a sad indictment on our society that there's not enough statues of women because all those young girls out there, they want to be what they can see. And uh, I sort of feel that, you know, my statue is one of a young black girl who can dream big and say, look at this. If you see the design of the statue, it's got my totems, it's got stolen generations flat. I'm running over rugged country. And I sort of feel that's, that's been my life, Charlie. Noble, what are you most proud of? You've had an incredible life, and I know it's a difficult question, and mm. we often ask people who's the best footballer you've seen and so on, and it's difficult to answer. But is there one thing that stands out in your mind that you're really proud of? I mean, obviously, like you said, it's a difficult question because I've had three children, I've got a grandson. All of my sporting achievements have just been phenomenal, but I sort of feel that we're born on this earth, Charlie, and we're all going to die at some stage and it's what we do in between, but also the legacy that you leave. And I sort of feel now that I've started my foundation, which is around food security, community laundry and micro businesses is reshaping the way that communities are seen and giving hope and opportunities. And so I'd like to say that my greatest achievement, I hope is my legacy that I leave with my foundation. And I love helping people. Nothing gives me greater feeling than to be able to help people that could potentially will never be able to return a favour. And that to me is important. I'm in a position where I can give and I can be a voice and, and starting my foundation is the opportunity to be able to change communities and, and give them hope and, and a different way that, um, you know, they can look at their lives now. I'm going to say goodbye and thank you in my mother's language, one word that the Gringy people use. And it's been such a Pleasure to talk to you and hear your life through your eyes. Goodbye and thank you. Mandach. Bobo Charlie, in my Gagaji language. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.